Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Kids kiss the wind. Kids kiss the wind. Can't stop it. If you're struggling with drugs, alcohol, gambling or food, or concerned about somebody who is, tune in to The Living Free Show on 3CR at 1pm every Thursday. I don't know how I got there, but and I couldn't stop it. I had stopped expecting that anybody cared. Never enough. I'm never enough. It's never enough. He's never enough. That was the confusion. Tune in to Living Free, stories of recovery from addictive behaviour. Thursdays at 1pm on 3CR or listen at 3CR on digital radio or podcasts and live streaming on 3cr.org.au Being able to centre myself and be okay in myself and turn my world around Living free Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'm Anne and with co-host Bill I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and to, to acknowledge that sovereignty over this land was never ceded. Usually on the Living Free Show we showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from the effects of drug, alcohol gambling, food and other addictions. Today the focus is a little different as we welcome to the Living Free Show Dr Nico Clark. Dr Clark is the Medical Director of the Medically Supervised Injecting Room at the North Richmond Community Health Centre and also the Head of the Addiction Medicine Service at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Welcome Nico. Thanks Sam, it's a pleasure to be here. For those unfamiliar with it, the Medically Supervised Injecting Room is a space where people who inject drugs can do so under medical supervision. This means that they can inject their drug without judgment and with access to health care and social support. So, Nico, the medically supervised injecting room was opened in 2018 as a two-year trial. Can you tell us the status of the facility now? Is its position secure? So we're getting towards the end of the fifth year of that trial. It was initially set up as a a five-year trial with a kind of two-year first period and then a three-year second period. And the the, the result of the two-year evaluation was that it had um, resulted in significant reduction in ambulance attendances for people um, to where naloxone was administered in the, in the area compared to the rest of Victoria, which had seen an increase, and that it was really providing uh, uh, a range of services to a highly marginalised group of people and that there was, you know, how do you say it? there was? It had provoked, it had provoked some debate within the local community, and um, talk more about that as we as we go on. But on the basis of that, it, that certainly it was uh, the, the the trial was extended for the full five years, and we're we're coming towards the end of that period. The the review led by uh, John Ryan. It's a, it's a kind of independent review panel who prepared a report to government. We've produced, provided them with access to our clients, access to staff, to all the data that we collect, you know, the number of um, 
uh, services we've provided to people, the information we have on the kind of needs of people who come through here, the number of people who've come through. They've interviewed, uh, I think, 100 of the clients of the service, uh, 30 of them with kind of in-depth interviews. All I know is that they asked us to stop sending people who had such positive feedback on the service. <laughs> they thought you were skewing the, skewing <laughs> the thought, study. All I was thinking was I've, I've got to, I, I, when I have the moment, I've got to make sure we send the positive ones, but I hadn't, I hadn't gotten around to any kind of screening. So you know, hopefully the, the feedback from the people to the review panel has been positive. Um, uh, but, you know, that will come out. It might even come out before this radio show is broadcast, but it, it, it could be released at any time with then the, the government's plan for what they what they would like to do. So if the centre is going to continue beyond the end of June, there will need to be new legislation because the, the legislation was only for an initial mm-hmm. five-year period. I mean, from from my perspective, it it has... It has been an incredibly successful trial on on virtually every aspect. That there there have been an enormous number of people who've used the service who have, you know, huge needs for such a service as this one. They uh, both from the perspective of kind of uh, they're at risk of overdose because they're injecting opioids, but also because we see people with huge um, psychological traumas that they've experienced when they were younger. That have resulted over time with compounded, you know, difficult interactions from failure to kind of behave in ways that are expected over time. The vast majority have spent some time in prison, and in fact, many have been recently in, in prison because of, you know, that's what happens to you in our society. Often, if you, if you, you know, if you kind of have a traumatic and then you look for substances to help you cope with that, you, you often find yourself. Um, in that situation. So uh, a lot of people have been homeless. A lot of people have bloodborne viruses like hepatitis C, huge problems with their oral health. And we haven't really needed to convince people to take up the supports that we have on offer. Just the fact that we have a range of support services on offer in a way that are provided in a, 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 a kind of non-judgmental way that just it's easier to access than yeah. many of the services in the community. We found ourselves just inundated with with people who who were kind of happy to take those services up. So, I think you know both from the overdose prevention service and the access to services for this highly marginalised group, the the trial has been incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. And I hope that that's a finding of the evaluation committee. Mm-hmm. What have you learned about the lived experience of addiction through your work in the field and especially at the at the um, centre? Mm-hmm. So I, I've been working with people with addiction problems for more than 25 years now. But the one thing that this centre has really highlighted to me is the prevalence of uh, significant early childhood trauma. It's, it's interesting. It's it's just so obvious in the, in the work we do here and that almost all of the people who attend here regularly, when when they come and kind of uh, it's appropriate for them to kind of share a little bit more about their lives and almost always there's been uh, stories of either sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, and witnessing horrendous violence and how much this is just not really part of the narrative in mm. our community about why people are using substances. Yep. You know, it, it, it um, we occasionally see it when 
you know, for example, into some kind of relative high profile, you know, sexual abuse cases. You yeah. know, I don't think we appreciate how many of the people who have kind of long term heroin use or, or some other kind of substance use similar experiences of kind of really significant early childhood trauma Mm -hmm. and we haven't we don't view it from that lens we don't really address that as a society and or make really as much efforts as we could to look for it and when we see it to provide the support that's needed to number one prevent things from getting worse for that person and number two to kind of help the process of healing Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's been the biggest standout thing for me. And, and, and I reflect back on my kind of work over the years, whether or not I was, why that wasn't so obvious to me earlier, I would certainly see it. The, the only thing I'm that I can say is I think the work here has, has, has kind of helped me be open to hearing that from people. I don't, I don't kind of ask anybody to tell me their, their difficult childhood experiences, but just provide a, a space that it's okay to tell me something that, that you might otherwise feel a bit reluctant to tell somebody because you, you might, it, it's... Um, Shameful. You know, yeah. It, and we have these barriers to kind of revealing in the full extent of our situation, depending on how we think that yeah. the person in listening will, will, will hear it. Yeah. And I think I've become more open to... To hearing that lots of people who come here occasionally who not dependent at all who haven't necessarily had that significant trauma but if you're looking at the people who who are regularly attending this facility almost all of them i think mm-hmm. have had these really significant experiences of other childhood tra- trauma or, and, and in, in many cases it's really intergenerational trauma yeah. disadvantage and, and it's very difficult to say who's to blame for this situation whether it's the person or their parents or the person who abused them or who the person who abused them you know and it, but it, there's just high levels of uh, of trauma in our in our society that we that we're not really addressing in the most constructive way so that's the thing that's kind of stood out most for me in, mm. in, in this facility particularly yeah. I've been working here now I wonder about the population of people that you're seeing here versus those Coming to the hospital, is the trauma evident in those people too? There is a lot of trauma in people who come to the hospital mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So often often they're drinking large amount rather than injecting drugs. But at any one point in time, there's there's more often than not one or two people who I've known from the injecting room who are in the hospital as well. Yeah. yeah. Just, just because of the, the high risk to people's bodies that the, the injecting drug use can play, people can get significant, really significant infections in different parts of their body. Mm-hmm. So there's, uh, you can see those same levels of trauma in people who are drinking. So that certainly, you know, certainly the people injecting drugs are not the only ones who are traumatised in yeah. our society. People have respond in different ways, and not everybody who has a kind of event, you know, like that, kind of ends up using substances to cope with that. Some people, you know, incredibly resilient and and learn to cope with the impact yeah. it has on them and to overcome that and to even incorporate that into their yeah. being so that they have an enhanced capacity to be compassionate for others or yeah. support support other people. Some people they might you know find it all too hard to cope and they're kind of more likely to go down a, a self-harm route or a suicidal route and then other people kind of look for a, uh, something to help them feel better and get through that and it's a, which and something that works in the short term at least is something that can relieve those 
kind of feelings of distress and then of course over time they can cause other problems yeah and of uh, course there's, there's know, socially acceptable addictions and socially unacceptable addictions isn't there yes we uh <laughs> and not not just substances like we, we right. you know we're, we're, I, I, you know this job has not been good for my workaholism addiction yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to say. Um, that's the most um, socially you know, acceptable one isn't it <laughs> You know, that certainly we kind of have very different uh, approaches to nicotine and alcohol addiction yeah. in our society yeah. than, we, than we do to, uh, to other substances. Yeah. Well, let's move on then to talk about the stigma um, that surrounds people using injectable drugs. Mm. How, how much of an impact does that have on their, their trauma, their ongoing trauma and their, their mental health and physical health? Oh, it's enormously important. The the people who use our service report that they're intensely aware of the the way others are viewing them and they'll often say how different it feels inside the service here compared to anywhere else and that that's the the one space they they don't feel they've been viewed as somebody who uses drugs and then they don't then see themselves as somebody who uses drugs and they they feel just themselves and they feel they're seen as themselves and they feel that just has an enormous uh, impact and is often the main reason that people come. We don't, we don't think people. So many of the people who come here are really that concerned about the risk of overdoses. Otherwise, they you know might not have been injecting heroin in the first place. But you know that that's that really to escape from that that stigmatized gaze for some period of the day that uh-huh. is really important to people. You know, people internalize that they it affects everything from people's capacity to imagine a life that's different for themselves. You know, and we see it through, uh, even within healthcare services, we see it within social support systems. Even, you know, one of our staff came here from another health facility and said, you know, I didn't think I held stigmatised views towards people who inject drugs, but then working here, I realised I did. And, you know, that, you know, there's layers of that, those kind of beliefs that we've internalised, many of us. Mm. That is kind of difficult to unravel mm-hmm. a little bit to try and kind mm-hmm. of see how you know how many assumptions we have about why people are the way they are or what's mm-hmm. the appropriate way of responding to them. So mm-hmm. you know, I think people who inject drugs are the most stigmatized people in our society, and that's consistent with what the World Health Organization says it's found internationally. And we had the recent case of the poor woman who didn't get the medical treatment she needed in prison when she was detained for shoplifting, allegedly, and and died. Yes, Veronica Nelson, yeah. I was was involved in the inquest as an expert witness, so I I had the opportunity to see the many aspects of the health care she received. And yes, it, uh, it was really very harrowing to, to see. And, uh, you know, and then to see there was like two and a half thousand pages mm-hmm. of the documents and then 40 videos to see. I think many people in that system were, were well-meaning people who thought they were going about their job in the right way. Yep. yep. You know, I think if they kind of were to step back and see it in yep. a broader perspective, would would really be horrified and themselves as to how they fit into the big picture of it. Can you tell me, um, can we get right down to details then? What does treating someone with sensitivity and respect look like and sound like when when you've got, when you've got someone that you're consulting with or or you're dealing with? Um, Is that a weird question? I I, I mean, (laughs) not at all. It's not at all a weird question. I I think it's, um, it, it was interesting. I think if you asked staff here, you might give different answers from 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 different people. 
you know, when I meet somebody, I, I try and just to be open to whatever, who that person might be just to, in the same way I'm talking to you now, I, I, I'm not trying to prejudge any aspect of, of, uh, of that conversation in advance. I'm not going in with an agenda. I have to convince this person to do this. Uh-huh. It's, it's just like, well, who are you? What, what can we, what do we have in common? What is there something we can do together in like in, in some ways when, you know, when you meet anybody, there's, a, there's, at, at the most simple level, it's just like two people come together. What's sharing their situations, yeah. their possibilities, and how can they help each other? I'm a doctor. I have. I'm a doctor. I have aspects to various things that might be of use to you. You're somebody with their own story. You might be happy to share some of that story with me, and we can see whether or not there's the we can find something that works for both of us. On the on the one level, it's as simple as that. On another level, I think it does help to understand the structures that have kind of led to people being in the situation that they are in and have an awareness of those obviously so that you can realize when you know they're coming up as potential barriers to those people having their the capacity to live the lives that they would like to live having a house good health care food something meaningful to do you know the elements of a dignified life and then and then in a certain it was certain sense also having an awareness of your own privilege, your own power, your own your own place in that in that whole situation. Thanks, Nico. We'll take a break now with a song called um, "Scarlet's Way" by a band called Empire. It's okay to live, don't you dare be free 
Think again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio. 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and Streaming Life at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. From Iran to the Americas, the Pacific to Palestine, and here in so-called Australia, people are standing up for freedom and liberation. This May Day at Melbourne State Library, join the voice of Revolution Iran Melbourne, the Black People's Union, renegade activists, unionists, and people from all over the world as we stand together in understanding that we are all in this together. A lineup of speakers and music from around the world demanding justice and celebrating our common struggles and our common humanity will be announced on the event page soon. You can find the event by searching May Day for Freedom and Liberation on Facebook. May Day for Freedom and Liberation, 5.30pm, Monday 1st of May at State Library, Victoria. A 3CR community radio supporter. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. This is a living free show on 3CR 855 kilohertz on your AM radio dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you would like to listen to one of our many podcasts, then you can find us on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. I'm talking today with Dr. Nico Clark, specialist in addiction medicine and medical director of the medically supervised injection room at the North Richmond Community Health Centre. Going back to the, the trauma have you got enough resources? Have you got enough directions to point people in, enough psychologists or, or psychiatrists that could help mm. them go back to that stuff? Certainly we, by no, we not at all is the short answer. You know, we were, we were set up as a kind of referral service, you know, so people come in, they inject, they overdose, we revive them, make the most of the opportunity to refer people to other res- resources in the community. You know, it's not an insignificant kind of, thing to try and heal trauma that's happened many years ago and all the compounding effects of trauma that have happened since then Mm. i mean i i I work in a hospital that has the most amazing response to physical trauma that i think i've ever seen somebody if you have a car accident and a in the middle of nowhere in in victoria there'll be you know you've got a good chance of being flown down to more Melbourne in a helicopter, there'll be a a team of people waiting for you in the emergency department. They'll all start immediately assessing injuries have happened and what initially needs to be happened. And then as soon as possible, you'll be wheeled off into an operating theatre and various things will be put back together. But it's resource intensive. Yes, But if you don't do it, 
if you don't do it, you, you know, the, the consequences of not healing yeah. those physical injuries, yeah. uh, uh, it's really significant for that person. So I think we all know that it's kind of resource intensive to heal, phys- you know, psychological trauma as well. But it, it, the response in our society is completely different. There's no helicopter wheeling mm. you down mm. to, an, to an emergency department. When you do land in an emergency department, you're likely to be made to wait. You might leave before you're even seen you're more likely to get a response like, well, we don't have the resources that you need here. You know, or here's a phone number. We don't, Mm. whereas we should be saying, fantastic, here's an opportunity to heal that horrendous injury that you've received. And we should be throwing those same liberal resources at it. So we haven't uh, collectively, I think, really come to terms with the, the fact that we should be responding to psychological trauma the way we're responding to physical trauma yeah. and, you know, really making it really easy for people to get that mm. access to, this, to the full mm. response as early as possible. Mm. Having said that, there are certainly things that we can do here and, and, and there are trauma services in our state that are fantastic and we refer people through to them, but... But, um, you know, in terms of often it's difficult to make a connection with an external service and we've realised that where possible we can, you know, build on the relationship that we have with people from them getting to know our staff here and providing so that kind of initial trauma response here. So often that's just helping people solve basic life problems, getting their identity details sorted out so that they can get access to any payments they're eligible for from Centrelink. Yeah, helping them get um their, their best accommodation that they can get, you know, food, helping them sort out some kind of typical relationship issues, having thinking about getting them their the mental health support they need, the physical health support, any drug and alcohol treatment. So often it's like those building blocks first, and yeah. then uh, they're, they're often their crisis, the immediate crisis things, and then we get round to helping people cope with yeah. some of the the challenges of psychological distress and and it would be fantastic to have more services in that way but and that's something we're we're working on but often just doing those various other little bits and pieces is that kind of uh, can you know help people who've had those traumatic things in the past at least kind of for the situation not to get worse but yeah start to put things back together yeah and it that people really do need to get their basic needs met before they can start concerning themselves at all with um probably trauma that they don't even understand or perhaps don't uh, don't connect with the predicament that they're now in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in the hospital setting, I mean, it, it's clear that in the, the setting at the centre in North Richmond, it, it really is about cr- managing the crisis of that person or simply giving them a safe place to inject their, their drug, relatively safe. Mm-hmm. At, at what point are you ever focused on recovery? Is, is that more of a focus in the hospital or...? Both. In, you know, I think recovery is we we here both in the intake room and the hospital to help people live the best quality of life that they can. Um, I think one of the really fascinating things for us here has been how many people have gone from being homeless, you know, injecting heroin every day for years and years and years, to having some form of drug treatment, stopping their heroin use getting accommodation, getting a job, sorting out various other aspects of their life that need sorted out and kind of not looking back from there. I think one of the things that we've, um, it's been, I think, a revelation for all of us is uh, 
the role for some of the, these new opiate pharmacotherapies in that regard. So, you know, the majority of people who uh, who have a you know, dependence on heroin, the, the safest form of treatment is to go on an opiate replacement for a period of time until you sort out the very, various other aspects of your life that were kind of leading you to inject heroin and then and then kind of put you in a, a better position to find other mechanisms of coping with the challenges that occur in life. Yeah. And then when you've done that, then to come off that opiate pharmacotherapy, if you if you kind of go down the detox pathway too quickly, you you often end up yeah. relapsing and that and each relapse is a risk of overdose. Mm. So we initially started referring people for those pharmacotherapies to our community health centre next door and they the, the GPs there became full. They said, look, we, you know, I, we kind of reached our capacity to treat opiate dependence. We want to be able to not exclusively treat that. So we we have an on-site clinic here in in the injecting room building, uh-huh. and where we provide a range of kind of on-site services because it's difficult to refer people to for this treatment in our community at the moment. There there isn't it isn't easy to find people to treat opiate dependence at the moment. So we we've set up a clinic on-site where we can just make that transition to pharmacotherapy as easy as possible so typically somebody will come and say you know i've had enough of this can you help me stop and we'll have a chat and then we'll say when did you last use and they say about half an hour ago and we'll say well oh you know let's um, get things up to start tomorrow and they and we go from there and the majority of people at the moment choose to have a, an injectable form of opiate which lasts for a month oh, which wow. they don't have to go to the chemist every day they don't have to pay five dollars a day and the dose that most people take kind of pretty effectively reduces the effects of additional opiate use. And we had a, you know, we were really unsure when this medication came out as a brand new medication. Uh, it had never been used in this population group before. Most people were saying, you know, you should only use it in your more stable people. Maybe because it was seen as a drug that's kind of helps recovery and it's more geared towards people who are able to recover and not mm. to use. And what we we saw that many people were in fact most people who went on it stopped using and the question became to what extent can they put all these other bits of their life together and or or not and and if and when people were able to kind of sort all those other elements of their life out having place to sleep good intimate relationships uh, something to do then they would often transition very quickly from one pattern of drug use and living to something completely different for me i, I think recovery is like patterns of drug use have kind of stable conditions. It's a bit like kind of quantum physics in a way. There's like the stable orbits. Like if you, you know, daily heroin use provides, you know, you have a routine. You have to, mm. for most people, you have to, you know, something that gets you out of bed, keeps you busy. Yes. And you, you'll, and you'll have some time in the day when you feel at least partially okay. Yeah. And, and it, and it to, if you, if you kind of go, on a treatment and you've got nothing to do and you don't have that social interaction, you Mm. don't have the, then some people decide that life is better the way it was before. So I think it's a bit all or nothing. And so I think the people who are coming into our injecting room uh, are often uh, in as good a position to go to what we might consider a kind of recovery Mm. pattern as many other people in our community. I think the one thing is the extent to which they have really active thoughts of things, those traumatic things that have happened in the past, so that, that they might have active what you might call complex PTSD, 
you know that that they're just really finding it difficult to get through the their daily life without um taking you know they just find it really it, very difficult to sit with those feelings that they have yeah. and I, I think for that group you know not using something is a difficult short-term goal and it's more important to help with kind of techniques to cope with those the way that people are feeling yeah. but many people who come here they say i haven't enjoyed using heroin for years i just haven't known how to get off it i've had an experience of treatment in the past that didn't work out for me i had to go to the chemist every day and if i missed an mm. appointment with the doctor the chemist said you haven't got a valid prescription you got to go back to your doctor and the doctor said they were full for a few days and they've all just got too hard mm. so we we never push recovery on anybody but if we never we never rule it out either and you know we're very in fact um we're speaking to kind of job providers at the moment to be able to offer more of a a kind of direct support to kind of moving towards um, meaningful employment and activities for people who want mm. to go down that path. Mm-hmm. Have you got have you got figures on it? Have you got a, a sense of how many people you know move away from the lifestyle? So we've treated more than uh, eight hundred uh, people with opiate pharmacotherapy over the last few years since we've set up this on-site clinic here, and uh, the, uh, more than five hundred with this uh, opiate pharmacotherapy injection, and we've. We've looked at some of what happened to those people. You know, we looked that, you know, the majority stopped using heroin, at least initially. We followed up the first 12 months group cohort for another 12 months and saw that they had, you know, significant reductions in drug use over that time. Mm-hmm. In terms of those longer terms of, you know, follow up data, we, you need to kind of follow up people who you're no longer in contact with. And, and that's a challenge, but we have, we've partnered with the Bennett Institute to um, to propose a cohort study where we can exactly answer these questions to look at what happens to people in the longer term and we'll be able to follow up 500 people who've used the service over five years mm. that will give us all you know those kind of answers in a that's the best way to get that kind of information. So the main focus of the Living Free show is on the lived experience of people who've overcome their addictive behaviours through practising the 12 Mm. steps of recovery um, Mm. that originated in AA. Um, Is Mm. that an option that you suggest to people? We do. Where we think it's appropriate. In fact, we are working to set up a kind of peer support group that may not be an NA model officially, but will incorporate some of those elements of kind of an NA. It, it hasn't been, uh, wasn't a primary focus initially, but it's become clear that it is something that, that many people, particularly those who start this pharmacotherapy, that yes. they, that they would, uh, would value and, and that they would need. Um, and so we are, we're talking to some people at uh, Shark and uh, also uh, who've kind of been running kind of peer support groups to help us model what would be the right kind of peer support group for our client's situation. What is uh, Shark? We, um, self-help, self-help addiction and recovery. Uh-huh. So the AA and, and NA and the other 12-step programs believe that mm. addiction is a disease. Is that how you understand it? I think it depends on your definition of diseases. <laughs> so I'd like, you know, the, I think technically it's classified as a, you know, meet, you know, by a World Health Organization as a having the characteristics of a disease as in that it goes beyond something that today I think I'll use heroin and not be able to control it. It, uh, you know, I think, I think repeated patterns of substance use 
often that are kind of initiated in the in in the response to kind of psychological triggers not not exclusively but often in response to those do then alter your brain you you know you the way in the same way that the way we think alters our brains you know the connections that we make in our brains then are more likely to be the the way we connect those you know that this the more yeah. likely the way we think about something when we next faced with a similar yes. situation and they're not ir- irreversible but they're just mm. kind of the the neuronal connections in our brain are they don't want to completely re recompute every problem they face and if there is you know there was a, a solution that they developed last week yeah. or yesterday they'll think well we'll we'll, yeah. we'll take the solution yesterday and then you mm. you know then you kind of that's part of kind of the habitual thinking formation mm. it leads to habitual behaviors which can then be difficult to change mm. um i think and then in you know so over extended periods of time you do you know you can find it difficult to kind of think your way out of an addiction and it's become something that's beyond your it's difficult at least whether it's completely beyond it it's kind of you know certainly a challenge to control in the way that you might you know otherwise make you know be in a much better position to make decisions around the rest of what you're going to do with your day so from that model you know i think it's true it's uh, it's become something that 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 people lose the capacity to control easily themselves. Mm. Mm. And how do you see, as a an addiction specialist, how do you see the role of abstinence in addiction? So the period of abstinence, uh, in the same way that you know, you know, periods of use kind of set the brain thinking on. The longer you're abstinent on something, the easier it is for you to be abstinent with something. You know, the longer you're not using substances to help cope with emotional regulation the easier that becomes over time and so i think for people who have developed a, an a addictive way of using substances it becomes easier to regulate that substance pattern by not using them at all but you know this is not the only way but i think it's the easiest way um there are many people who've kind of you know had alcohol dependence or other forms of dependence who've managed to kind of change those patterns over time to non-dependent patterns but that requires a kind of a degree of reprogramming the way your brain interacts with the, those decisions around substance use that i think is more complex than kind of saying well you know i'm going to choose not to use them at all mm-hmm. so uh, you know we would normally recommend to somebody who's once they've kind of formed a kind of dependent pattern of of uh, substance use that that's the easiest way of reducing mm. their hearts from substance mm-hmm. use mm-hmm. if that's what they want but uh, mm. you know at the same time we um the you know for some substances like opiates there are particular risks of going down an abstinence pathway too early oh yes yeah which means that you know we we would you know we would recommend a kind of transition you know and a bridging pharmacotherapy yeah you know, yeah the twelve-step groups would say, "Look, it's abstinence, or you're just going to go. It's a downward spiral. There's no, there's no mm-hmm. uh, options. There's no. You either abstain from this, or you will uh, progressively get sicker." Um, yeah. So, I mean, the service here, I think, is an interesting one in that at the injecting room, I mean, that, that we see many people who have already down that spiral, um, and yet we, at the same time, 
as interested in kind of having a conversation about how they're going, having a cup of tea. Do they need a hepatitis test? You know, can we get them some naloxone to yeah. so they can revive anybody who they come across who's overdosed? Or do they have they had enough and they want a pathway into yeah. a different way of life? And that that you know, there's no pr- presumption in advance as what's going to be the right yeah. response to anybody or the right thing for anybody. No. And that's it's, part of the not judging. I mean, I, I think if you push if you push one response to people when it's not the right thing for them or they're not open to that. It, it's an immediate barrier to your relationship with that person and then can have negative outcomes. Yeah, um, push them away from, from the services that you're off, offering. Hmm. Hmm. It's time for another break. We'll uh, break with a song called It's Gotta Start Somewhere by Nathan May. You give me many things but you can't replace The things you lost and the things you take We need an upper D, upper D attitude Well you help me and I help you Cause it's gotta start somewhere Great grandfather worked on the railway Mother up from her dream time New generation shining through There's nothing in the world that love can't do As good as it was, no, we can't go back Everyone riding on this one-way track Laws and coaches, old and new It gets dark in the tunnel, but we're gonna break through Cause we gotta start somewhere Cause we gotta start somewhere a lot of things but not the truth so get on board there's no excuse we're all so busy in this crazy life but it don't take much to make things right cause we gotta start somewhere if we all live the way we should Respect each other, intentions good. Learn to live without the shame. Forgiveness now without the blame. It's gotta start somewhere. It's gotta start somewhere. Oh, let the 
Published or not has been around for years, but now Jan Goldsmith is joined by David McLean. We will chat about words and writing, authors and audiences, publishers and printing, a voice for them all on 3CR. Published or not, every Thursday, 11.30 till noon. When you get home, baby, write me a few of your lines. I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR This is a Living Tree Show on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Today I'm talking with Dr. Nico Clark about the experiences of people he sees at the medically supervised injecting room in North Richmond. I've got one final question. I'm a member of Al-Anon, which is the organisation mm. that helps families of alcoholics. Mm. Um, and so I was interested in the prevalence of the trauma that you described. Is there anything... Um, in place for where you can help the the families affected by the user because it, it, you know usually there's a trail of destruction isn't there and um, mm. and and very bad dynamics the family usually doesn't know how to deal with it usually you know is very judgmental and so mm. how do you see the role of that mm. in, the, in the person's treatment yes it's interesting you raise Alanon I mean as you kind of alluding to. Often many of the people who come to services like this or, or even a service at the hospital have somebody in their family who has a substance use disorder, mm. uh, either a parent or a sibling. Mm-hmm. And, and often that's something that I suggest to them they might want to explore, you know, to understand at least what the impact of that might be on them. Mm-hmm. Um, often people haven't really thought much about that 
or even have an awareness of what codependent thinking patterns are, how they might instinctively have kind of responses that don't help them or the other person and that it's a part of their own pathway to kind of their own Mm -hmm. healing to understand those processes better, whether they just for their own awareness or, you know, like you've done perhaps to kind of be part of a a 12-step support through through Al-Anon to kind of work through that. But it, you know, and so, you know, certainly for, for everybody I see with a kind of substance use disorder or substance abuse problem that you know there's an awareness that there's potentially that's been part of their story and then as you as you kind of alluding to then for them there's potentially other people in their orbit who who may be affected by Mm. the substance use pattern of the of the person using substances or, or or maybe they were jointly affected by somebody else's kind of substance use and 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 when we say you know we say substance use really it's you know, that, that substance use is a trigger that there's really some emotional damage that's occurred there the substance use is like um it's a sign that something's not right it's not necessarily the primary you know there's, no, it's, there's an, some, it's an analgesic isn't it it's a pain relief yeah, yeah. yes there's you know it's a it's a kind of something which says to us well that maybe there's something's not all right with that person and 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 uh, then we kind of you know when you when you dig a little bit beneath the surface you kind of you know find out what's really led to to that situation so i mean i think not something in terms of supporting people's relationship with families that we've been particularly successful at doing in the relationship although sometimes some people at the injecting room but although sometimes people come in who are related already i i recently had the opportunity to visit treatment services in pakistan and it was a it was a as part of some work to try and with the U- United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime to to support the dr- development of the drug treatment system in Pakistan, and it was interesting to me there. That's a huge focus of what the service does is to try and reconnect people with their families because uh, being separated from your family is such a huge trauma in some way. You know, it's very difficult to survive. Exactly, in, in, exactly. If, if you're not, if you're not, you know, supported by a family, you know, physically as much as emotionally, yes. you know, you can't, it, you know, mm-hmm. there's not the same degree of social support that we the have po- here. The so, poverty, yeah. mm. so whereas, but, you know, so I, I often say to people, would you, you know, you connected with your family and, and often they're not. And I say, well, would you like me to, you know, what do you, would you like to try and reconnect? Often the answer is no, and you know, and it's made me reflect a little bit about to what extent is that you know the family is often you know there's kind of perhaps painful memories of interactions with family members, but but the the potential, but that's nonetheless a huge potential resource for many people if those relationships can be healed. Mm. Um, so it's um you know we haven't uh, we haven't at this point really had many opportunities for the family members of the people who use the injecting room to be involved at all in in or to receive much support through us we'll kind of re- sometimes we kind of refer them on to other services but we sometimes hear from them in for people who have fatally overdosed and you know there are i mean that's still a risk for mm-hmm. you know, for people who are using heroin of course mm. yeah it's a i think it's a it's a it's a good point to think that people don't exist as in you know completely mm. independent 
entities mm. they're, they're mm. part of these broader mm. family structures at least at one point mm-hmm. and that they're mm. both potential drivers of substance use and also potential healing factors yeah it might not be good to be put to <laughs> no I mean, it's, it's i mean i was speaking to somebody at the hospital on the phone yesterday and um, you know it was some it was just as an example of kind of how we you know always have to be sensitive to what the the person's dynamics are that it was most our contacts now it's on the telephone and uh there's something about the way that uh, this person was whispering a little bit when they answered the phone we i'd never actually spoken to her before that i immediately had the suspicion that perhaps there was somebody in the house who Mm. wasn't really happy that she was on the phone and which turned out to be correct and you know you know within 30 seconds of talking to a stranger she's telling me the level of detail that's quite scary the nature of the work we do sorry to close on such a you know the complexity of it and the oh goodness it's just so complex isn't it and so oh almost intractable some of it i wouldn't like people to have that in in, uh, that's not my experience of working in this facility Uh, or my work in a period of addictions i think you know there is in fact huge possibilities for people to make huge changes in their lives um for so many of the people we see they can go from one situation where they're kind of you know really living in very challenging circumstances to living in a different situation in a you know relatively short period of time that's kind of far bigger changes than most of my colleagues in the hospital see they you know they see they see tiny changes in the risk of a heart attack <laughs> or, or you know what with a little minor performances in function and they think that that's a huge success we have the we 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 often see and have the potential with with the people we work with to see huge changes and, and even there are those for whom those kind of pathways are difficult those kind of changes will maybe not happen but but sharing the journey with those people in some way as um you know i think everybody even if it's not going to be you know transformational and the, the way that uh, in many ways that the capacity to share the witness people's stories it's for people report that that makes a huge difference to them to them to have somebody to you know kind of share that journey with them and witness it and kind of have, have the opportunity to kind of be uh, in the same space with you know where they're not feeling judged compared to kind of going through it on their own thanks nico all right. That conversation with Dr. Nico Clark, the medical director of the medically supervised injecting room at the North Richmond Community Health Centre, took place on the 24th of February after the trial had been reviewed. Shortly afterwards, on March the 7th, Premier Daniel Andrews announced that legislation would be introduced to the Victorian Parliament to make the facility permanent. That's all we have time for today. Coming up next, we have Balanois, the Spirit of War hosted by Uncle Tao Jim Choco Edwards. Join Uncle Choco on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. And to take us out, we've got a song called Lonely Long by 8-Ball Atkin. You don't have
listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.